Hello again, and welcome to Global Exchange, part of the Canadian Global Affairs Institute's podcast network. I'm your host, Colin Robertson. On this episode that we're recording on January 22nd, we talk about Canada and North Asia in the wake of the recent Taiwanese election with John Grutzner, Vina Najibola, Stephen Nagy, and Hugh Stevens, all of whom are our CJAI fellows. John worked in the private sector living in China and Asia for most of his career. He is also the co-founder of Intercedent. Vina is Vice President, Research and Strategy at the Asia Pacific Foundation of Canada and an adjunct professor at the School of Public Policy and Global Affairs at the University of British Columbia. Stephen is a full professor at the International Christian University in Tokyo. Former diplomat, he was Vice Chair of the Canadian Committee on Pacific Economic Cooperation, Distinguished Fellow at the Asia Pacific Foundation of Canada, an executive fellow at the School of Public Policy at the University of Calgary. Welcome back, John, Vina, Stephen, and Hugh. Thank you, Colin. Thank you. Thank you, Colin. Thanks, Colin. For listeners, on January the 13th, Taiwanese voters went to the polls and elected their current vice president, Dr. Lai Ching Ti, giving his DPP party an unprecedented third term in the president's office. No party will hold a majority in the legislature. While Western leadership congratulated Dr. Lai, and with two-thirds of the eligible voters casting ballots, China said, quote, this election cannot change the basic pattern and direction of development of cross-straits relations, that the motherland will eventually be reunified. In recent years, Beijing has ramped up military and economic pressure on Taiwan, prompting concerns for international observers that a conflict could be on the horizon. The People's Liberation Army said after the election, it remains on high alert and ready to, quote, smash plots of Taiwanese independence. The threat of armed conflict in North Asia is not going away. So let's begin. Stephen, I'm going to direct my first question to you, sitting in Tokyo. With the Taiwanese election behind us, what's the mood in the neighborhood, especially where you sit in Japan, as well as in Korea? Well, Taiwan plays a really important place in the region's economy. You know, it's the third largest investor in Southeast Asia. It has deep and long-term relations with Japan. And of course, it has it's a technological partner with South Korea. And we should not we should also remember that it has very close relations with China. So um, when we look at the region, we look at the election results in Taiwan, it has impact throughout the region. I think there's great relief in Tokyo, Seoul, Southeast Asia, that the results really were a, a vote for the status quo, for the Taiwanese people maintaining their de facto uh, independence, but at the same time, not instigating the Chinese. Um, the Japanese are very concerned about sea lines of communication, technology supply chains, and of course, their long-term relationship. South Korea looks at the partnership with semiconductors and as well as trade. And again, for Southeast Asia, they're looking at their third largest FDA invest, FDI investor, and they also want to see the status quo. So as I look at the, the, uh, the countries within the region, they're really looking at these results and saying, well, this, this is a vote for stability. It's a vote for the status quo. And it's a vote for uh, Taiwan retaining its current position, however ambiguous that is. And it's difficult for Beijing. But I think for Beijing as well, they look at the divided votes as, as, as a, a sign that the Taiwanese people really aren't moving towards independence. Um, but it is also at the same time a sign that uh, Beijing has to do a lot more work to court the Taiwanese people for any kind of future uh, reunification with um, mainland China. Stephen, how does the election play into the relationship between 
Korea and Japan. You've commented in the past that it's, it has sometimes been rocky, although of late, uh, under some pressure from the United States, and of course, the, the, the threat of China, they appear to be working more closely together. Does the Taiwanese factor play into it? Well, I think it's important to understand it within the South Korean political dynamics that uh, in South Korea, the progressives are relatively uh, anti-Japan and the conservatives under President Yoon Suk-yeol uh, really has a more pro-engagement. They're really about diplomacy. Let's push the hard issues behind closed doors and let's focus on the areas of cooperation. And I think what we've seen under President Yoon is a real concerted effort to work with the Japanese and the Americans on shared issues. And one of those shared issues is really peace and stability across the Taiwan Strait ensuring semiconductor supply chains remain stable, finding alternative ways to produce those critical uh, semiconductors that go into our iPhones, our iPads, our, our jet planes, much of the technologies that we use in our everyday technology, everyday lives. So I think that there is a, a, a leadership part of the growing convergence of, uh, um, of, of strategic interests on Taiwan. Um, but besides that, I do think that the South Koreans themselves understand the, the future of their economy really will be connected to uh, Japan, the United States, and of course, Taiwan. And that means Taiwan's fate matters to the South Koreans, and they need to cooperate with like-minded countries like Japan. Interesting. Fina, the relationship with China, which has been sort of rocky over the last couple of years, starting with the Meng Wanzhou and the two Michaels, and then uh, ramped up with uh, allegations of foreign interference, uh, and then the, the scrutiny that Canadians put on what was going on in Taiwan during the elections. We've got Parliament coming back in a couple of weeks, and there's a number of parliamentary committees looking at the whole issue of foreign interference, which includes, of course, so-called Chinese police stations, cyber intrusion, IP theft. How do we manage that going forward? Because it is going to be under continued scrutiny as well as, the, of course, the Chinese relationship with Taiwan. Uh, absolutely, sure. Um, Colin, maybe before I jump into that, let me just add a word on Taiwan, specifically Please. building on uh, excellent comments that Stephen just made. Um, given the outcome of the elections and given that the relations between Taiwan and uh, PRC will continue to be difficult, I think this is the moment where Taiwan will need a lot of support from its democratic partners including Canada. So uh, Canada would need to really step up together with Japan, US, South Korea, and others. And watching the statements that were issued right after the election, I was a little bit disappointment, disappointed given how timid Canada's statement was in comparison to those from the US, UK, Australia, Japan, even Philippines had a lot more robust words of support to uh, Lai Qingde and the DPP. So I think my hope is that as we move forward, um, we are a little bit more ambitious in interpreting our One China policy and are not self-censoring in our engagement with Taiwan, and that we build on an excellent agreement that we reached last year, late last year, on the Foreign Investment Promotion and Protection Agreement with Taiwan to deepen both economic and cultural ties, but also do more with them um, when it comes to dealing with the region, de-risking from China, and, and all the rest. So that's just the word on Taiwan and kind of my desire to see our government and to see Ottawa be a little bit more proactive on this and, and less. And you get the impression that there's, there's, there's certainly some division. The, the Conservatives seem much more positive. And even within the Liberal Caucus, the report that came out from Parliamentary Committee, I think a couple of years ago, just a year ago, you're you're absolutely yeah. right. The China-Canada Committee has done an excellent report on deepening relations with Taiwan with a number of recommendations that I think can go forward. I mean, of course, I can't help but think of the timing of Minister Jolie and her counterpart Wang Yi's call on January 11th. 
Uh, so I think there was probably a little bit of sort of a reaction from that in the statements that then were issued over the weekend about Taiwan elections. So, uh, and I'd be happy to get into unpacking that call a bit later, but um, I think in general, the message is we need to be less timid and be much more in line with our key partners and allies and support Taiwan at a moment that it will need that support much more uh, than before. On foreign interference, you're absolutely right. I think we're going to see a lot more attention in the first quarter of 2024 than we did perhaps in the fall of last year after kind of an initial start where we saw a lot of activity with the expulsion of the two diplomats and, and stuff that came out around um, intimidation of Michael Chong, MP Michael Chong's family. Um, we'll also see some activity in the Canada-China Committee. Uh, you're right, they are resuming their hearings next week, uh, next Monday. Um, from my perspective, I feel like this is a long overdue conversation. I'm glad that the inquiry is finally going underway. We'll have to bear a couple of things in mind. One is to have this conversation in a way that is both comprehensive and nuanced, but also does not demonize a very large Canadian Asian population. We have to really guard against anti-Asian racism and kind of speaking about this issue in a way that does not differentiate between the CCP, the Chinese Communist Party, and the activities of the party that are deeply problematic and are threatening to our democracy, to our national security, and to our values versus sort of Chinese people and certainly Chinese Canadians. So I think that is still a task that needs to be managed much more carefully than I think last year, particularly in the media. The other element of it is, while we still obviously need to have the inquiry to get a full understanding of what exactly transpired with respect to elections and other forms of Chinese intimidation coercion, what we need to also keep in mind that a number of things we already know that we need to change, right? Like action needs to happen now. We don't need to wait for the various reports, be that the May report or the later report. There's stuff that needs to happen with respect to CSIS and how CSIS engages with uh, institutions here in Canada in terms of sharing of information, particularly around threats. We saw already something coming out last week on the list of uh, institutions that particularly our educational institutions need to be careful in dealing with. So I think there's a number of steps that have been taken and that can still take place before waiting for the inquiry to conclude, right? So we shouldn't uh, divorce action now from kind of the, the longer process of getting a fuller picture of what exactly transpired with, with the elections. Um, and then finally, all of this needs to happen with an understanding that, yes, of course, it will impact our relationship with China, but that is perfectly fine because the relationship with China is complex and multifaceted. Um, other democracies face this as well, Australia, Japan, China, uh, Japan, US. Um, there are things on which we need to stand firm and defend our values and our interests, and that may upset China. Um, it, it's something that we have to manage. Um, again, my hope here is that we're not overly cautious and self-censoring and sort of anticipating these things rather than than essentially doing what is necessary for our sovereignty and national security. I'll stop there. Thanks, Vina. Hugh, I listened to our ambassador, uh, relatively new ambassador in Beijing, Jennifer made a couple of weeks ago on the House talking about how it is a complex relationship and that the relationship uh, and the discussions are not always easy uh, against the backdrop of what some see as China having peaked. I'd be interested in, in you having observed China for many years, where you see the Middle Kingdom and given its challenges, economic, demographic, as well as geopolitical. 
Yeah, sure. Thanks, Colin. Um, I know this phrase peak China has been around for a little while and it's sort of a catchy phrase. Um, and as you point out, uh, there's no shortage of challenges on the on the plate for China, whether it's uh, the, the demographic uh, overhang that they're facing, the real estate bubble, um, challenges in the stock market. Uh, but the, you know, the growth came in this year at roughly 5%, if you believe the Chinese statistics. So uh, a lot of problems, but uh, are the wheels falling off? I, I would definitely say no. I mean, China is still a very robust regional economic power. Uh, and I think Canada needs to be aware of this as we seek to engage more closely with Southeast Asia. We, uh, we always have to bear in mind the region's uh, own relationship with China. Um, and of course, the, uh, the regime has still many levers to pull, uh, whether it's, uh, it's bailing out some of the property developers or stabilizing the market. So um, I, I, I don't know if the word optimism is right, but certainly the, the negative pessimism betting against China, I think, is part of being overdone on, on behalf of some parties. I mean, let's face it, China... Uh, the, the economic growth was unsustainable. The economic growth of the uh, of, of the first twenty years after it really started opening up, and it's moving to a more economic, more mature economic phase. So one would expect uh, things to start leveling off. And other countries have gone through this. Uh, 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 of course, Taiwan and, and and Korea being good examples. You know, this so-called middle income trap. Will China get through this middle income trap? Well, how do countries get through it? They get through it by improving productivity. And how do they improve productivity? They use technology. So if we look at China through that optic, um, I think there is reason to think that China's going to be around and be a big player for quite a while. Because if we look at AI, if we look at other advanced technologies, electronic vehicles, going to the moon, whatever. I mean, China is really doubling down on its technology. So uh, I've always said you've got to be very careful betting against China. It's got a lot of problems uh, for sure, but it's also uh, moving in the right direction for a lot of things. So economically, I think peak China is well overstated. But the other factor is if we look at other aspects of China, there's no peak China if we're talking about military spending. In fact, it's on its way up. There's no peak China if we talk about becoming a naval power. That's just really starting to uh, develop now as the new uh, platforms come on stream. Uh, and uh, I've already talked about technologies. And, 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 uh, and of course, we look at diplomatic initiatives and so forth. So um, there, there's the whole security side, uh, which, of course, goes with the leadership. So the leadership, of course, is the black box. We have absolutely no idea exactly what's going to happen. And, of course, C has faced a number of challenges recently. Uh, the departure of the defense minister and the foreign minister and reported purges related to corruption in the rocket force and so on and so forth. Uh, but the consensus, if that actually means anything, seems to be that uh, he is still very much in charge. And, um, you know, as, as politics go these days, 70 seems pretty young when we look at, when we look south of the border, when we look at how long Vladimir Putin is there and plans on being there. And obviously she's planning on being there for a while as well. So uh, I would say any, uh, any reports of uh, the early demise of China are mistaken, as Mark Twain would say. Um, there's no big China. Um, China has a lot of problems. 
uh, it may uh, knock China off and, and, and force it to double down on some areas. And of course, we'd be talking about Taiwan. So then the question is, well, what impact will that have on Taiwan? Will economic challenges lead to some adventurism? Or will the fact that there are other things that need to be done mean that China will continue to sort of saber rattle and, uh, and, and try various initiatives, but basically we'll see more of the same? I guess uh, I, I, I fall into the, into the latter camp. Uh, they weren't happy with the outcome of the Taiwan election, but they weren't going to be happy whichever way it went. They at least can say only 40% of the popula population voted for the DPP this time, owing to the three-way split. And they did, of course, they did say that uh, Leiching does election didn't represent the will of the Taiwanese people. So technically, they're correct. 60% voted for somebody else. Uh, but all three parties basically had a pretty similar position on cross-strait relations. So this this issue is uh, not going to be resolved anytime soon. No, no, not going away. Um, John, you've written a piece for the Wilson Center, Canada and China, you need to calm down, and we will link to it. Uh, uh, but you argue that, uh, that Canada, it is time to Canada for Canada to renew engagement with uh, China, and certainly, as he was saying, and uh, Vina was saying, Melanie Jolie seems to be picking up on that with her conversation with uh, Foreign Minister Wang Yi earlier this month. Um, arguably, this is a kind of pragmatic diplomacy that she talked about in a pair of speeches she gave late last year, in which she said, yes, we can trade with countries whose values do we don't share. Uh, you make some, uh, I thought, quite useful suggestions in your paper. Do you want to share them with listeners about how we should and could proceed going forward? Well, I mean, it's a matter of principle. I think that in any situation, uh, you should have a dialogue going over the issues that you agree with and the issues you don't agree with, because that's just common sense. And there has been a trend in diplomacy probably for the last 25, 30 years that you only talk to people that you agree with. And coming from a private sector background where the assumption that every meeting you ever start with is predicated on the fact that the person on the other side probably doesn't want you to be there because you're trying to sell something or get their money, you have to begin that dialogue to have some sort of access point. I think from my point of view, looking at the world today as a non-specialist, what we probably need is a psychologist in chief rather than a secretary of state. Uh, because leaders, I think, and we all as individuals post-COVID have become isolated. And so these meetings, especially if they take place in Beijing with critical people from Zhongnanhai and the government, uh, are a way because they're forced to prepare at least to understand what the issues they're going to be discussing are and think about them. And obviously they're going to have an alternative perspective put together, whether that be in the case of New Zealand or the United States or Canada or or other visits at the ministerial or deputy ministerial level. So I think that dialogue is healthy. The problem in Canada is obviously, and I'm not really a big social media follower, but I did read some of the uh, comments that I'm a China hugger, an apologist, whatever. Um, I don't think that objectively speaking that uh, these terms really have any validity. So I don't really care in one level at a personal point of view. But I think we as a country uh, have to get more sophisticated because I think we live in this very binary world since 1994 when John Chrétien started Team Canada to his credit that we either can't do one thing if we do the other. 
well, the world's not that sophisticated uh, to people that think that way. But in fact, it is. Uh, we have a healthy relationship with, uh, and taking the acronym CCP, China is a customer, uh, China is a country or a people, but we have certain issues right now with the leadership under Xi Jinping. And we forget the trajectory prior to 2013, and we don't plan possibly for that trajectory coming back. And so we have to look at it in terms of the context of what's the real existential issue on the table. Obviously, anything around Taiwan that precipitates a blockade or a military action is a very serious concern. We are the beneficiaries, and it's terrible to say this, by default of the war in Ukraine, because it's driven our commodity prices up. Uh, it's driven our grain prices up. It's driven our oil and gas prices up. But the, And even that being said, the C.D. Howe Institute puts the cost of the war at a very early stage uh, at trillions and trillions of dollars. We have to recognize that if there's a war, not just for supply chains and ethical reasons and, and reasons obviously casualties on all sides, that any war in North Asia would be catastrophic to the global economy. We're already talking at the IMF about two to 7% loss of GDP. Uh, if there's a rift around the BRICS and the so-called uh, like-mind members. And in a country where we have negative GDP growth, you can ask the question, what about peak Canada? Um, China has its issues, and I agree with you that it's going to probably plod through and come out uh, after a certain period of time with a forward momentum in its economy. And even though the statistics can be questioned and there are issues around agricultural food security, I think that we have to be very cognizant that a China that fails the way Putin's Russia failed is probably a worse construct than anything in the region. So my view would be that Canada, the foreign policy level, has to look at three things. Taking what we're doing in the Indo-Pacific strategy and recognizing that we may need one for Central America and should start that before any change in presidency, because the most toxic thing that's faced in Canada right now is potential return of a Trump administration. And that could be uh, catastrophic for our economic interests, let alone what we, this term Canadian values. So the major issue that's plaguing the United States that's driving some of this paranoia is a failure of the Central American economies. And so we have an Indo-Pacific strategy. Maybe we need a very well-funded, well-thought-out Central America strategy to help our number one trading partner and our number one security partner. But to me, the Indo-Pacific strategy and, and again, mitigation of war, and I know I'm a broken record on this to many people on this call, uh, has to include some sort of rapprochement and engagement with Kim uh, in the DPRK. And dialogue could be futile, it could be protracted, and it, but it's certainly not going to do anything negative, in my opinion. When North 38 is writing an article uh, or posting an article by two very qualified people last week, Carlin and Hecker, about Kim preparing for war. We have to look at Belarus and we have to look at the DPRK and say, is that creating an opportunity? If she, who unfortunately, for whatever reasons, is obsessed with the unification of Taiwan, and he also recognizes to a certain extent if his economy doesn't do what he and I are hoping it's going to do, he has to use that as a fail-safe device. So I think that we have to be um, very cognizant of what we're dealing with. Our prime minister was very proud of going to Barbie 
and wearing a pink shirt, but did he go to Oppenheimer wearing a black armband and make the same thing uh, in terms of the recognition of the strategic issues that are facing Canada? Because as we all know, Barbieheimer is, was the theme of 2023, and we only seem to want to have half of that theme in our thoughts. In the spirit of conversation and having sort of a, a bit of a back and forth, maybe I could weigh in on what both uh, Hugh and John just said quickly. Um, I, I totally agree with Hugh that we are not probably seeing peak China, but there's definitely plateauing China. And I think it would be a mistake to underestimate all the structural and cyclical challenges that China is currently facing, both through uh, demographic as well as debt, as well as uh, the really shallow demand, both domestically as well as from outside. And also, let's not underestimate the international environment through de-risking diversification and the geopolitical context that we're finding ourselves in. So I would not underestimate the challenges that China is facing. And the number of 5.2 that Li Ka-chang presented in Davos uh, really has been challenged by others in terms of the GDP growth that we saw in 2023 in China. Rhodium Group, for instance, puts it really somewhere at 1.5%, so it's a really different number. And then I finally I'd note that it is true that China will remain a very significant economical play, economic player in the region, and there's no actual decoupling from China, but we shouldn't underestimate how difficult it is now to do business in China because of the way that they are now interpreting their national security law in terms of travel and engagement. So I think the context has really changed. And lots of people were hoping that post-COVID and kind of post the crisis that Canada had with China after the Meng Wanzhou issue, that we can go back to some kind of a normal. But that's not possible, both because China has changed and because the geopolitical environment in which we operate, and particularly Canadian companies operate, have changed. So I think that's important to really put front and center, that let's not exaggerate the China kind of peak and China decline, but also let's have a realistic picture as much as possible, given how hard it is now to get correct data out of China about how hard it is to engage, and that the direction of travel for certainly new engagement with China is that of de-risking and diversifying. Now, whether that will succeed long-term is a different picture, but at least that's kind of the political messaging that we're getting including from our government as well. And I see that Stephen wants to jump in, so I'll pass. Uh, uh, please, him. Stephen, come in. I'm interested in how you see things and what you're picking up from both the Koreans and the Japanese about how they look at China in terms of this peak or plateau or where China's going, and including whether they believe the figures. Yeah, I, I think, John, all, all three of the other speakers have, have it, uh, touched upon it, but I, I think we're not interested in China's failure. We're interested in a different kind of China, a China that is more responsible, more rules-based in terms of how it engages, more transparent, um, that generally follows the rules-based order. We are, I think, open to um, renegotiating a rules-based order through dialogue and through conversation, not through um, coercion that we've experienced. Um, I think we need to be very, very clear that a failed China will have global repercussions. And, you know, Hugh talked about a war across the Taiwan Straits, maybe five, uh, two to 7% of global GDP, but a stagnant China or a China that's not economically stable will have broader global implications. And I think this goes back to our point about what is Taiwan's role in the region? How does Japan, South Korea, Southeast Asia, and other countries look at the situation across the Taiwan Straits? is that, again, these countries uh, articulate their position on Taiwan in terms of peace and stability. They don't say peace and security. They say peace and stability. 
they talk about the status quo. They talk about, and I think this is really quite interesting, the internationalization of Taiwan as a global public good. Uh, and I think that China is also a global public good in many ways, is that without the China-based global production network, without its supply chains, without its investment to Southeast Asia and other areas, um, we won't see global growth at the way, uh, at the level that we need. So um, Canadian policymakers and Vina very, mentioned this very articulately, that uh, we need to have a nuanced uh, discussion about Canada-China relations, the role of China in the global economy, in global supply chains and technology, uh, and the importance of ensuring that China is uh, successful, but successful in a different way that uh, doesn't, uh, you know, fringe upon our national interests. And I think the rules-based order that has brought prosperity over the past 70, 80 years. Dean, I want to move to Hong Kong and human rights, something I know you've, you've looked and it's been a fair bit of your career on. We've got a big expatriate population there. And, and Hugh, you may come in on this as well because you live there. Um, how do we reconcile our commitment to human rights with the desire to trade uh, and, and invest? And, and of course, we're not alone in this. And I'm not sure that anyone gets it right. Uh, the, the whole idea of one country, two systems is blown up. And of course, that has implications for Taiwan uh, because of what's taking place in Hong Kong. So, Veen, I come back to you. What do we do given where we're coming from? And again, it's balancing all those different interests, which you have uh, aptly described. Yeah, no, that, that, that's a good question, Colin. And, and to some extent, this whole kind of binary approach of trade and human rights, if I may say so, it's a bit of a leftover from the engagement era. That's how we used to look at it. And I think John referred to this. For the last 20, 30 years, we, we sort of looked at China through this binary of like, we want to do trade with them and we want to profit from them from an economic perspective, but we have issues on human rights going back to Tiananmen Square and so forth. So this is not a new dynamic. And I would invite us to think about China in a much more strategic and holistic way. We have to be clear what is our overall all objective with respect to China. Our key partners and allies, notably the US, Japan, and Australia, have articulated that primarily through a balance and deterrence framework, right? So balance China's rise, manage China's rise, and deterrence of making sure that we deter Chinese aggression, coercion, and so forth. That is their approach. If we look at our Indo-Pacific strategy, I'm not sure that's exactly what comes across. So it's to some extent, we agree with the analysis because if, the, if you read the China section and kind of the disruptive uh, global power and so forth, forth it comes out, but it's not as clearly articulated. So I think we do need to have a conversation and the government needs to be much more clear of what is our overall strategic objective and the engagement with China. Again, other allies pursue that then. Once they're clear, that's what they're doing. They're managing China's rise and they're deterring it while also doing that in a context of economic interdependence. So what complicates this dynamic of managing, of balancing and deterring is that that's happening in an interdependent economic environment. And so it, it makes things complex. So therefore you can completely decouple, but you are approaching de-risking and diversification in strategic kind of targeted ways. So that whole idea of a small yard, high fences that Jake Sullivan articulated last year, right? That's that's what's being pursued. So. I mean, I think it's Canadians, we also need to get clear on that because there are some in Canada who argue that we should, you know, have some kind of a middle path, sort of have an ASEAN approach to this, that we can be equidistant from China and the US. I think that is a complete non-starter. We are very, you don't choose your geography. We're very much a US ally. I mean, that is 
to me, sort of an assumption that cannot be challenged. And therefore, we will have to deal with China from that perspective. Therefore, we need to have a multidimensional kind of multi-layered approach that has cooperation when our interests are aligned and demanded on climate, on fentanyl, on AI, and there are issues on which we will compete economically, and then there are issues on which we will have to challenge, and that's going to be human rights in Hong Kong. So I finally come actually to your question, which is what we do. And, and the issue is, I mean, we have to um, be able to name the difficulties, particularly when it comes to the large Canadian community, Canadian uh, who live, the 300,000 that you referenced, as well as the diaspora who live here. So we, first of all, have to be able to speak about the issues and not be deterred by the fact that China will find that problematic and there will be protests and, and various other diplomatic demarches our way. And then we have to figure out a way to defend our own democracy at home. So this is where we go back to the foreign interference conversation and coming up with specific recommendations and ways of strengthening how we deal with this at home. And then finally, on international stage, we won't be able to change China's behavior alone. We have to be realistic about that, right? There's very little that Canada can do to influence Beijing's behavior. The only thing we can do is work in coalitions with other like-minded countries to be able to shape the environment in which Beijing acts, right? So that at least we are clear about norms that are being break, uh, broken and that there is some kind of a cost and consequence for that. And costs can only be applied collectively. Canada cannot do anything alone, which means that we need to strengthen our alliances and partnerships, which gets me to my final point, which means that we have to strengthen our own investments in defense, diplomacy, development, and have to have a lot more competence, not just on China, but also on ASEAN and on India, to be able to be a real player in that important region. Not just because it's economic, economically important, but because from a perspective of peace and stability, uh, we need to be a stakeholder in that as well. Thanks, Vina. So, I'm gonna come back to our Indo-Pacific strategy, but Hugh, I want you to come in on this because Hong Kong, for a number of years got a lot of attention from us, but in the last couple of years, it's as if we sort of said, oh, well, all is lost. It's now part of China and we fought the good fight, but we still have interests there. And of course you live there and this, and, and how, you know, whether Hong Kong does have implications for Taiwan. Well, uh, you know, you're right that uh, uh, Hong Kong has changed. I mean, it, it's unbelievably sad to see the, the sham, the show trial of Jimmy Lai, to see where Hong Kong was and where it is now, um, it's it's really been neutered. Of course, we always had a kind of a, we treated Hong Kong differently because it was different. It had a special place. I think, we, I'm not positive, but I think we might even have an extradition treaty with Hong Kong. Um, but you know, now that uh, it's very clear that Hong Kong and its so-called independent judiciary is under the thumb of China, I do think we have to look at it differently. I mean, it is a part of China. Of course, it's a it's a it's a free port. It's it's a separate customs territory, et cetera, et cetera. And so there are there are some economic issues to pursue. We also have a legitimate interest, as do other countries, given the large number of uh, passport holders that are there. Um, but let's let's not kid ourselves that we have any more influence over what's happening in Hong Kong than we have in China. Really, we have to work with others. Uh, and a number of uh, other countries have spoken out. I mean, if anybody actually has a legal claim to speak out, it's the it's the UK, and it's done so uh, because the uh, the Chinese have sort of unilaterally reinterpreted all those bilateral agreements. And uh, in effect, the lesson of one country, two systems is uh, 
it, it, it's evolved. It, uh, it, you know, as, as as a model for Taiwan, it was never a very attractive model. Obviously, it's the antithesis of the model now. It's completely dead in the water in terms of uh, finding any possible solution to uh, a modus vivendi between the mainland and and and, and China. So, uh, I, I think we are going to have to monitor, continue to try and speak out, do what we can. Maybe maybe um, take some. Uh, special measures for Hong Kong residents who need to leave uh, Hong Kong for one reason or other, who have ties to Canada. There's probably scope for us to do something there. Um, but at the end of the day, I think uh, Hong Kong's best days are behind it, frankly. My final question, and I want you to lead on this one, Stephen, is that... Uh, strategies, especially for middle powers, are sometimes difficult because middle powers basically respond to events. But we do have an Indo-Pacific strategy, now a year and, what, three, four months old. Um, when you look at it, you know, things, there's been a lot of events since then. How would you adjust it, or would you add to it, or would you subtract? The, it's clear that I think the strategy with India needs, obviously, work, but the China strategy, and we've been sort of fencing around it, and the North Asia strategy, uh, which we're now trying to implement. I, you know, I give the credit, government full credit, especially ministers for engagement. We talked about Minister Zhili talking to uh, Foreign Minister Yi, but certainly uh, Minister Ng has also been active and out there. The Prime Minister was out there a couple of times last year. But is the strategy bearing fruit, and does it still stand up? Why don't you lead on that one, Stephen? Uh, well, I'll start with, I think, three areas that are definitely in need of improvement. First is clear, principled communication. Uh, the second is uh, knowledgeable and serious engagement. And third is a concentration of resources in dependable, like-minded uh, countries. So in terms of the first point about clear, principled communication, um, we've seen a track record of, of really poor, clear, principled communication about our Indo-Pacific strategy, about our engagement. You can think about the Denang incident. Um, you can think about how the Wing Manzhou incident was handled. Um, you can even think about the uh, recent uh, points of uh, Prime Minister Trudeau on the International Court of Justice. Not good, principled, clear communication. And this is really important for our allies because it makes us a reliable partner when we are clear and we are uh, communicating in a principled way. The second is knowledgeable engagement. And uh, Vina touched upon this, that we need much more knowledgeable engagement within the region. Um, where are Indo-Pacific uh, chairs at universities in Canada? Um, we should have three or four that are spearheading the production of the next generation of Indo-Pacific specialists. This means not only one language training, but multiple or two language trainings within the region, internships experience within the region. So um, our next generation of diplomats and business people um, have a really good sense of how interconnected and heterogeneous the Indo-Pacific region is. Um, lastly, I mentioned this idea of a very focused, more uh, results-oriented, pragmatic engagement within the region. Quite frankly, the peanut butter has been spread way too thin, uh, to, say, to, to say the least. We, we, we should be focusing on those reliable partners that we can build, uh, uh, I guess, a track record and momentum. That's Japan, that's South Korea, that's Singapore. Uh, I would argue investing in Vietnam and Indonesia is probably uh, important. 
and focus on this, build those uh, synergies, and then from there expand out forward. Uh, and I think this is a really, really uh, important part. And as we look at our Indo-Pacific strategy, uh, again, I think that it's um, it's a good step. But on those three areas, it's really problematic. And we and our allies within the region, they look at us and they're saying, well, Canada, what are, do you really want to achieve in the region? Um, you're saying one thing about China, but the other uh, in your Indo-Pacific strategy is saying something else. It seems schizophrenic. Um, so I think that, again, as we look at our middle power engagement, I'd really like us to shift away from a normative approach to middle power behavior and be much more pragmatic, much more results oriented, much more national interest focused in our Indo-Pacific engagement. And I think, again, it requires us to be clear about our communication and make sure our communication is principled, make sure that we have knowledgeable engagement and invest in the tools that we need for long-term engagement. And lastly, focus on key partners to build the momentum for long-term, sustainable, meaningful engagement in our Indo-Pacific strategy. Stephen, does any country get it right? You know, you, I look at Australia, who we often compare ourselves to, but they, of course, have much deeper interests, and they have decided to focus now for really the last 30 years, their attention very much on the Indo-Pacific. You know, no country gets it right, but I think I'll give you three examples of, or four examples that I think are interesting. Uh, Japan, uh, Australia, uh, Singapore, and surprisingly, Vietnam. And you're going, what, Vietnam? You know, Vietnam last uh, month hosted Xi Jinping, um, but they hosted Xi Jinping and they signed some BRRI agreements after significantly strengthening relationships with the United States and other partners. Um, this is the kind of engagement that we want to engage with, is that we engage with um, the, the, uh, a challenged relationship through a position of strength and partnerships. And again, Vina mentioned this in her comments, is we need to build those strong partnerships with the countries that, are, you know, we can't really change our relationship, and that's the U.S., um, that we share same values with, like Australia. Um, Singapore, very nuanced, uh, very diplomatic. Uh, they uh, continue to communicate well to be able to bridge uh, the United States and China, and again, to try and anchor the United States within the region to balance China, which I think is the smart uh, uh, smart way. Australia, uh, they've softened their tone in terms of how they criticize China, but at the same time, they continue to invest in the economic relationship, but deterrence through partnerships like the Quad, through AUKUS. And lastly, there's Japan. And if you've watched Japan engage with um, the region broadly, uh, since the, eight, the 19th century, uh, Japan has invested in the broader Indo-Pacific region, trying to secure sea lines of communication, build shared norms in a region that's heterogeneous, at the same time engaging with China and creating this, these, these um, deterrents, uh, cooperation, and competition in all parts of its relationship. And I think these are pretty good models to build on. They're not perfect. Uh, but they give us a good direction of how we should move forward. Thanks, Stephen. John, you've looked at this. We've taken a kind of country approach, but the Indo-Pacific strategy also looks at defense and security, people-to-people uh, -people ties, trade and investment. Um, what would you, if, as you take another look at the Indo-Pacific strategy, you know, given the events have taken place, what would you adjust or amend or subtract? Mike. John. I think we have to put the whole thing into context first. Uh, the Raffles Hotel Group's annual revenues are 1.5 billion US, which is a 
approximately what Canada is planning to spend over five years. So what are we trying to achieve? Um, we're trying to tame an elephant or a dragon. Uh, we're trying to bring um, some sense of our lifestyle. Uh, already we have probably a need to adjust because there's about $80 million in the plan for IRCC to increase the number of students to Canada and make that process smoother when the Canadian public and the Canadian universities are, and the Canadian government is curtailing the number of international students. We have the same number of international students in Canada approximately uh, at the same level as the United States, which is obviously a bigger educational system. But I would argue that potentially we're building a strategy around a leaky dam and that if we don't really engage and create the conditions for stability from a national security point of view on the Taiwan Straits in North Korea, that the strategy is redundant and therefore we have to really admit that what the problem is and then engage. And the way to engage with Beijing, and I don't like to use the term China ever because I think that's a much more pluralistic a uh, healthier society than we're willing to give it uh, 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 credence to from sitting afar in terms of the aspirations of many companies, many people, and many individuals and players in that society. And we forget up until 2013 when she came in that the National Endowment of Democracy had been working for almost 30 years, uh, bringing in rural elections to a very successful level with non-Chinese communist parties. And so one leader took the country in a direction that he or uh, his people may regret someday. And we have to be cognizant that that may shift. But in the interim, I think we also have to recognize where are our leverage points. And our leverage points outside of China for very pragmatic things like making sure that their inter-bank uh, settlement system uh, and the SIPs is run on some sort of global standards. The unspoken problem with the Meng Wanzhou incident, in my opinion, that the United States never really articulated in Canada, certainly either ignored or didn't articulate, was the purity of the SWIFT system. Ultimately, the United States was defending its role to monitor international monetary transactions as it's been delegated to a certain extent by default. Uh, so it gets accused of interceding in, a, in that system. But in fact, somebody has to police criminality and violation of UN sanctions, uh, because if the United States doesn't do it, there doesn't appear to be another body that will. So we have to look at that in the context of SIPs. For China, we have to look at what China is doing offshore and look in terms of business corruption in the BRI. If that's a case, we have to look at what China is doing in the region in terms of climate change, environmental impact. They've been there's been sand taken out of beaches in Manila for the Chinese construction industry. That type of granularity, I think, has to be part of our long-term plan because ultimately climate change and the environment are a legacy you can't change. You can change sentiments, you can change political systems. And that's, to me, the overriding concern of it, maybe a value statement, and I don't see a huge commitment in the Indo-Pacific strategy to what is essentially a Canadian value if you go into the whole concept of Farley Mowat and John Livingston who wrote Rogue Primates, who was really the foundation of David Suzuki's thinking. And so where are we really engaging in Asia? I think we are, as a country, you know, uh, really not hitting the mark on some of what we say we believe in. And I think we're also potentially giving away the biggest lever we have in, over China, which is 
uh, strong commitment in Xi Jinping's office because I think he does recognize the agricultural system is as a big um, potential uh, area of concern, and that's why his major commitments have been domestically to food security and, oddly enough, pension reform. And Canada is an expert in running national pensions, and that's a touch point that we could uh, gain some uh, access to in terms of strengthening our partnership from government to government at a technical level. But if we give up the whole access to the food market, first of all, China will find it in, uh, through the BRI, and we may be doing ourselves a disservice, but we'll also be giving away the leverage. So I, I really think that we have to come back to this Indo-Pacific strategy, and this is the question that even Paul Thopel raised, is where is the interactive nature of it? Um, it has to be on a quarterly basis, rethought, redeployed, and uh, not in some sort of scatterbrain way, but to really address the essential issues that have longevity in terms of what Canada needs for stability in the region. Okay, Fina, the Asia Pacific Foundation has a particular interest in the people to people ties. You had the big conference last February, and I think you're planning another one yes. uh, next year and coming forward. Um, you've looked at the Indo-Pacific strategy. How would you adjust or add or subtract from it? Yeah, I think I fully agree with Stephen's points in terms of what can be done better, the three elements that he raised earlier. I would add what has worked for the one year that the strategy has been in place. I think its biggest achievement has been the fact that our prime minister, as well as a number of ministers, as well as a number of other businesses have shown up in the region. So Canada has shown up in much more visible way in the in 2023. I think the challenge will be to maintain uh, those levels of engagement, especially now that the G7 and G20 meetings are not taking place in Asia as they did in 2023. So the I think the region will be looking to see whether or not we will continue to show up rather than sort of show up episodically like we've done in the past. Another element I completely also agree that we need to invest much more that while $2.3 billion over five years is something, it's not going to be enough to properly engage with that region. Um, I think it's important for us to deepen partnership with the North Pacific, South Korea and Japan, and also look how that actually links to our Arctic and Northern Territory strategy. So that's something that we'll be looking into in 2024 is really linking North Pacific and the Arctic. Of course, we have to do something with our relationship with respect to China, managing it better, as we mentioned along the lines that we spoke about. So I don't like the term engagement. I think it comes with a lot of baggage when we talk about China, but we do need to have dialogue at the highest levels. China, Canada is an outlier when it comes to G7 and dialogue with China. Everyone else manages to be able to stand up to China when they have to, but also have dialogue at the highest levels at a regular interval. And that's important for crisis management. That's important for all the reasons that we discussed. So I hope that in 2024, we will see a visit uh, by Melanie Jolie and others to China or much more dialogue. But again, dialogue that does not surrender anything in terms of our sovereignty and our national interests. So no preconditions. We have to be very clear that when we engage, there are no preconditions. The readout from the conversation that took place on January 11th between Minister Jolie and Wang Yi was a little troublesome in that respect when sort of China lays out conditions, which go as far as, you know, correct cognition and sort of articulation of a narrative that uh, we would not agree with. So we have to watch that closely. And then a final word on India. Uh, we haven't said anything about that. To me, that's going to be a really big issue in 2024 and also critical to the success of our Indo-Pacific strategy as a whole. We need to um, find a way to, again, 
deal with India's rise while also recognizing that India is changing. That rise is happening at the same time that India is changing, which means our competence about India needs to also increase and we have to pay a lot more attention. And finally, a bright spot is Southeast Asia, where we're all doubling down on our engagement through trade missions. And of course, Asia Pacific Foundation also is very keen to do much more in Southeast Asia with ASEAN. And that's an area I think that has a lot of promise for everyone. Well, thanks, Fina. And, and we'll look again at India. Yes. as well as at Southeast Asia, but wanted to focus today particularly on North Asia, including China. Hugh, my recollection is you did a, a very good assessment at six months, I think, for the School of Public Policy. We've now a year and a bit on. How would you adjust or uh, your your original assessment after when you looked at it hard, uh, what, six months ago and seven, eight months ago? Well, I think the adjustment is to get some of these programs out the door. I mean, if you're going to give the, the IPS a report card, I think it gets very high marks for some aspects, which have been rolled out uh, quite well. Uh, and uh, Veen and others have, have talked about that, particularly the uh, representation in the region, uh, the, the foundation's uh, major Singapore conference, uh, with another one coming, and so on. And some of that may have been facilitated by conferences that are in the region. But other aspects of it are, are still behind, are still waiting to be unveiled. And I'm talking particularly about the track to institution building, people-to-people -people stuff, where frankly, we're still waiting. And I, and I know there's been the, the Treasury Board uh, process, et cetera, but we're now 14 months into this uh, strategy since it was announced that it was going to be rolled out. And, um, you know, I believe it was something like $25 million was, was promised so that uh, uh, this institution building and regional engagement could take place. And we're still waiting to hear the details, who's, you know, what the criteria are and so on. And um, this is an area where, frankly, uh, Canada could do more with Taiwan. There's the scope to do more with with Korea, Japan, all all of the all of the areas that we talked about. But uh, but Taiwan is mentioned in the IPS and would be a good candidate for some of these programs. And I think there are institutions and universities and and, and think tanks that are ready. But we're still waiting for the the, the starting gun to be fired by Ottawa. Now I come back to Taiwan. You say we could be doing more because we began talking about Taiwan. Do you think we should be doing more in terms of supporting Taiwan? Well, Vina gave a very good overview about uh, what we need to be careful of with respect to self-censorship. I mean, we I, I, I've argued for a long time, as have others, that there is legitimate policy space that could be filled that we have been reluctant to fill over the years for a variety of reasons. And usually it's looking over our shoulders at uh, at China, how would China react or, or China stakeholders. Uh, and those are legitimate concerns, but I think we have been guilty of a degree of self-censorship that uh, ha has not allowed us to fully exploit that relationship. So Taiwan is mentioned in the IPS several times. There are some concrete things we could do potentially through the regional engagement initiatives. But uh, another very concrete thing that we could do, which fits within a much broader framework, is... Uh, as chair of the CPTPP this year, we can see if we can move this process forward. It's not just uh, Taiwan's application, of course, it's China's and there are several others. Um, but up until now, the uh, the excuse has been, well, the UK is applying, we have to examine the UK. Well, the UK is done, basically, not completely done, but basically done. And that should not be allowed to be the excuse to say, well, we have to complete, uh, you know, cross all the T's and dot every single I on the UK accession before we can move to the next step. We have a year. Australia is the next uh, chair. Um, 
So I think between Canada and Australia, uh, and, and Canada can show some leadership here, we can start moving this process forward. I think many people, I'm certainly one of them, believe that uh, the criteria should be open to those who qualify, and that Taiwan certainly meets that, uh, that, that criteria, and possibly others, uh, Costa Rica, others. Uh, and, and there are problems with some of the other applicants, and, 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 and China's a big one, but we have to try and decouple or pull away the layers of the politicization and focus on the trade issues, recognizing that this can only be done by consensus, but the chair has an opportunity to move things forward. So last year was New Zealand, this year is us, next year is Australia. Um, so we have a chance, I think, to uh, to focus on this. I, I I don't expect that we will solve the problem, but I do think that uh, it's it, it's an opportunity for Canada to get the ball rolling in the right direction uh, with respect to uh, to dealing with multiple applications, but specifically with Taiwan's application to join the CPTPP because it would be a uh, a benefit for Canada. It would be a benefit for the region, and of course, it would benefit Taiwan. Good advice, Hugh. All right, my final question for you all, and always one of our listeners' favorites, is what are you reading or streaming these days? Hugh, why don't you start us off? Well, I've gone way back. I just found an old book on a shelf. It's it was actually Wade Davis, uh, one of his Massey lectures, uh, talking about the wayfinders and uh, the importance of cultural diversity. So I've been looking at it every few years. I'd feel guilty I hadn't read it, so I, I, I picked it out and read it. It's, uh, it was a great read. I just finished that. Okay, Wade Davis. All right, thank you. Dina, what are you reading? Uh, I'm actually reading a book on India. The uh, Foreign Minister of India, S.J. Shankar, has produced a new book on why Bharat matters, why India matters. And it's a really insightful uh, take, or at least an informative take, on how India is seeing international affairs. And, and I think in Canada, and, and I'm doing another plug, Colin, for, have a, for having a conversation with you on India, because I think it's really relevant. But that also happens to be what I am reading, and I recommend the book as a way of understanding how India sees the world. Dina, I, I hear you, and we will do so. John, what are you reading or streaming these days? It's a book called The Rise and Fall of the East, which actually stands for Exams, Autocracy, Stability, and Technology, and how it brought China success and why they might lead to its decline by Professor Huang at MIT. Okay. Well, leaves you, Stephen. What are you reading or streaming these days? Uh, I've really been plugging into two websites. One's from the Center of Strategic Studies in the U.S., and the other is uh, David OMB's Reading the China Dream. And why they're both great is they translate uh, Chinese intellectuals and political writers about how uh, what is the variety of thinking about everything from Donald Trump to Xi Jinping to neo-Maoism to uh, uh, Wang Hunin, the, 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 uh, the, sometimes they call it Xi Jinping's brain in terms of thinking of writing and, and uh, about China and, and where it's going. Um, they're both great tools and I really recommend them if you'd like, if you don't have the time to, to, to fight through all the, ch the Chinese language, um, great, uh, great translations that are really helpful. Excellent, well, thank you, Stephen. Good recommendations from all of you. Thank you. And thanks for listening to this episode of the Global Exchange. We were joined today by John Gritzner, Dina Najibola, Stephen Agee, and Hugh Stevens. You can find the Global uh, Canadian Global Affairs Institute on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Global Exchange is brought to you by our team at CJAI, and our thanks go out to our producer, Joe Calnan, and to Drew Phillips for providing our music. I'm Colin Robertson. Thanks for joining us today on the Global Exchange. Thank you.